I don't know about you, but just all week I've been thinking about how incredible Baptism Sunday was last week, seeing so many people follow the Lord through the waters of baptism. I know we had folks watching online as well, just really an incredible time uh, in the presence of the Lord. If there's one thing that I've learned about pursuit is you really never know what to expect on a Sunday morning. And uh, that's what keeps us coming back week after week. You know, some churches, you can close your eyes and you can have the exact same experience every Sunday for the rest of your entire life. Not here. And we do that on design and on purpose because God is more creative than church is boring. And so we want to create room uh, for him to do uh, what he does uh, best in these environments. And so thanks for partnering with us in celebrating all of the cool baptism stories. I mean, every week people are experiencing the transformation of God's spirit in their lives in incredible ways. And I continue to encourage you to think about it in this context, friend, this is not normal. And it's really good that it's not normal. It is not boring, old, same old, same old, dry, dead religion. We are in a move of God's spirit and we are seeing him do incredible things in the earth. And so you ought to be excited to be in church today. You ought to be glad to be in the house of the Lord. We believe success begins on Sunday as we submit ourselves in environments that honor his presence. His transformative work takes root in our lives and in our hearts. And so for you and me, sometimes we don't even recognize how much transformation we're experiencing until we're not involved in the thing that we used to be involved with. And so I'd encourage you to take stock of some of the work that God's spirit is doing in your life in both big ways and small ways. What I found to be true about the way that God works is that most often he is working behind the scenes, bringing all things together for the good of those who love him. And you don't ever really notice it until he decides to do the grand reveal in your life. But right now in your heart, God is working in ways that words can't even express. And so I'd encourage you to hang on, to keep going, to keep believing, to keep standing strong in the faith. After you've done everything to stand, continue to stand. I know we live in a world that is geared towards depressing you, towards getting you to live a small life, to getting you to believe things that uh, are not true or not what God says about your life. But if we can be those who remind ourselves of how good God has been and the things that he has promised to do both in us and through us, it'll cause us to have a hopeful view of the days that are ahead. You know, we are people who just honestly believe that victory belongs to the Lord. And so if we'll stick with him, not only will be not only will we be on the right side of, of history, but we'll be on the right side of eternity. And it is worth it to stay faithful to Jesus. It is worth it to stay true to Him. It is worth it uh, to be a person who lives your life as faithful and true. For it is worth it to follow Jesus. We're in the last week of our sermon series, "What Jesus Isn't," and this morning we're going to spend some time in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation chapter one. And before we ever get to Revelation chapter one, just let me help correct an understanding about the book of Revelation. It's not the book of Revelations plural. It's the book of Revelation singular because there's one revelation that is more important, more strategic, more foundational than every other revelation in your life. And it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so in the book of Revelation, what John is having more importantly than anything else is a revelation of the risen Christ. Sometimes people read the book of Revelation and all they see is the Antichrist. There is something more important than the revelation of the Antichrist. It's the revelation of the risen Christ. And so sometimes as believers, we can become almost obsessive about this 
thing called the Antichrist. The Apostle John says it this way, there are already many Antichrists working in the world around us. And we know that at some point in our eschatological future, there will be an individual who rises in opposition to Christ, who kind of has that title. But until that day happens, could we just be ultimately obsessed with the revelation of a risen Jesus? That revelation will prove to be the greatest, most transformational truth in your life. And that's what we cling to as uh, believers. There's a lot that's happening in the book of Revelation. It reads in part like a sci-fi novel. It is apocalyptic in nature. Uh, But this morning, as we look at Revelation 1, don't be distracted by all of the imagery and all of the creative language that John uses to describe what he's seeing. If you've ever been in a real significant moment in the presence of God, you know that there are sometimes human words that fail to adequately communicate the depth of what you're experiencing. And what we see in the book of Revelation is John using his best resource, his best ability to to, to use illustrative language to describe supernatural realities. And so we'll see that a little bit in Revelation 1. John is describing to us not only what heaven looks like, but what Jesus looks like. And the reason why it's important to know what heaven looks like is because it helps you more accurately pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, even as it's being done in heaven. If we don't know what heaven looks like, it's hard to adjudicate whether or not those prayers are being answered in our contemporary context. We know in heaven that it's a place of no sickness, no disease. We know in heaven it's a place that revolves around the worship of King Jesus. We know in heaven that there is no other inferior spirit that's exalted above the kingship, lordship, and sovereignty of God the Father. And so we seek to allow that canopy that exists above to be manifest below. The way that the kingdom of God is manifest below is through the activity of believers who partner with what God desires to do in this hour. We believe that there is a role for you to play. In fact, that's why the church exists. It works in partnership with God to destroy and dismantle the works of darkness. Church, more than a physical gathering, is a spiritual gathering of God's people being activated by the revelation that Jesus is Lord to not just be something, but to do something in the earth. You are here to be transformed into an identity and also be motivated into an activity. So we get our identity settled, we get our mindset renewed, and then we get equipped to be his hands and feet in the world around us. The church of Jesus Christ is advancing by force and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What means this, we are on offense, not defense. We are not trying to protect what is, we're trying to go after what's next. God has not invited you to be a manager of the aquarium, but instead a fisher of the deep. So we are people who are fishing in the deep seas. We are exploring and working with God as his glory covers the whole earth. The kingdoms of this world are becoming the kingdoms of our God and of our king and to the increase of his government, rule, reign, and peace, there is no end. This is the foundational truth of scripture. And when we can believe that God is as good as scripture says he is and can do everything scripture says he can do, that's when spirit-filled supernatural transformation takes root in your life. So that's what we're going after. That's what we believe scripture communicates. There is no book like scripture. All of these words are true. It communicates to us the character of God and the mandate of humanity. We are people of the word. We have submitted our lives to the word. And we know that even when the word of God is unpopular as it is in our current cultural context, 
context, scripture says, let God be true and every man a liar. And so I'm going to cast my lot with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And I'm going to commit myself to believing things that are even hard to believe at times because we are witnesses to the resurrected Savior. And so for you and I, that's just what we dare ourselves to believe in this context. I'm just going to amen myself this morning because I know that this weekend is, is uh, tough for you. Anyways, good word, Russell. Appreciate that. You guys acting like you get this everywhere else, but I know. I know some of the places you come from. You don't. The revelation from Jesus Christ, Revelation 1 Starting in verse 1, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, which must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. Blessed is the one, watch, who reads aloud these words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who take to heart the words of this prophecy. Why? Because the time is near. Watch how Revelation 1 starts. Watch the context, the hermeneutic. Blessed are those who read. Blessed are those who hear. And blessed are those who take it to heart because the time is near. Friend, there is a next step for you to pursue in your life. It's not just enough to read or to hear. For transformation happens in your life when you take this truth and you apply it to your heart. See, information becomes revelation when what you hear gets applied to how you live. The problem in the church today is not lack of information, it's lack of revelation. When you get revelation, you get transformation. See, scripture is not just a step of principles or how to live a better life or 10 easy steps for this next formula to live bigger and better than you lived before. No, we know that Christ promises us life and life more abundantly. But when you go from reading to hearing to taking it to heart, what you're allowing is the information you've received in your mind to be translated in your life in a way that you can apply to your exterior circumstance. And so what we need in our world and in this church is revelation from God's word that makes manifest in the world around us. Some of the most simple things that Jesus ever said were some of the most profound truths that shaped all of history. When Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And then finally he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds, you are the son of the living God. Christ responds, upon that revelation, I will build my church. Upon the simple declaration that Jesus is the son of the living God, all of the church is formed and founded. It wasn't a 17-page dissertation. It wasn't 40 different steps. It wasn't a 16-week class. It was one statement that became the ideological foundation and framework for why we gather today, because we worship the risen son of a living God. See, when that revelation takes root in your heart, it results in transformation in your sphere of influence. It reminds me of an old scene from uh, Pirates of uh, the Caribbean where there's a couple pirates in a canoe and they're paddling out to their ship and one of them is reading the Bible upside down. <laughs> and his friend goes to him, come on, you, you idiot, you're, you're reading that upside down. And, 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 and he said, well, it's the Bible, so you get credit for trying. 
in Jesus critiques the religious leaders in the New Testament. He says, you search the scriptures and you miss me. It's not just enough to read this upside down and think that we get credit for trying. No, you need revelation to take root in your heart. When revelation takes root in your heart, the natural byproduct is transformation in your life. It'd be like being in a plane and all of a sudden uh, the, the, uh, the pilot comes on the intercom and says, the plane is crashing. Well, that's information. But when that information translates to the way that you now order your life in that moment, it becomes revelation. So it's not just that we're hearing the world is in the state that it is or the church that is in the state that it is not enough to rack up an intellectual resume and then feel good about our spiritual position. These words have to translate to revelation in your life. Revelation is when you take hold of information and then it transforms your exterior circumstance. And John says, blessed are those who read and blessed are those who hear and blessed are those who take it to heart. Friend, when we think of scripture, we think of it as a canon of truth. Let me say something that is anti our cultural moment. You don't have a truth. You have an experience. You ever notice how different things work their way into the lexicon of culture and then become accepted as reality? Well, that's just your truth. And you have a truth and I have a truth and it's my truth and your truth and our truth. And you might think two plus two is four, but I think two plus two is five. And my truth is just as valid as yours because it's mine. And yet I think from scripture, it communicates this clearly that we don't have a truth, we have an experience. And when my experience doesn't match up with God's truth, I have a decision to make. Do I change my experience or do I change God's truth? Let me explain this from a theological perspective. I believe that Jesus heals. Not every person I pray for, I see healed in that very moment. So I've got a decision to make. I will either change my experience or I will change God's truth. And some people do change God's truth. They say things like this, well, God doesn't heal anymore and the Holy Spirit isn't active anymore. And I think all those gifts ceased when the apostles died or they really need those gifts overseas because it's overseas. But here in America, we're really smart and we don't need power encounters because you know, we just really need to be convinced intellectually. And so we've got a decision to make when we read things in scripture that God communicates as true. When my experience doesn't match that truth, do I lower God's truth to the level of my experience or do I raise my experience to the level of God's truth? So what it means for me is I ought to pray for people everywhere I go to see them healed, saved, and delivered, even if it doesn't happen in every circumstance, because even when I don't understand, I'm going to choose God's truth over my experience. See, we live in a world that demands justice but ignores truth. And when justice is pursued apart from truth, what you empower is the most offended people to make the most illogical demands. Watch what Isaiah the prophet says in 59 and 14 of the book that bears his name. Our courts oppose the righteous and justice is nowhere to be found. Truth stumbles in the streets and honesty has been outlawed. 
If there's one verse that explains our cultural moment better than anything else, it's Isaiah 59 and 14. For when truth stumbles, justice disappears. Never in my life have I heard justice talked about more than it is today. And yet how can justice be accomplished when truth is ignored? Truth is the foundation, watch, that justice gets built upon. Justice apart from truth isn't justice, it's tyranny. Hear me. Sometimes out of the goodness of believers' hearts, in an attempt to be loving, we have affirmed what is not true in order to appear relevant to that which is not just. Our culture says you must affirm my experience in order to be loving. But scripture says, if you love the world, the love of God is not in you. You must develop the capacity to be called all sorts of names and remain unshaken in your faith, else you will live under the bondage of man's approval while missing out on God's. In John 18, Pilate asks Jesus, what is truth? It's a question that deals with the epistemological nature of humanity. Yet in John 17, Jesus states all of God's words are true. I have to discipline myself to believe that what God declares is ultimately true and beneficial for my life, my family, and my world. Friend, I believe scripture is inspired. I believe it's authoritative, and I believe it's infallible. When we say scripture is inspired, we mean that it's breathed by the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16, all scripture is God breathed. Not the scripture you like. Not the cherry picking verses that we all like. Not the ones that only speak to my blessing and not my correction. No, all scripture is God breathed. And not only is it inspired, it's authoritative which means it ought to have a place in your life that can course correct your heart, your mind, and your activity. Not only is it inspired, not only is it authoritative, but it's infallible, meaning it's perfect in what it communicates to us. Now, oftentimes, imperfect people through poor exegesis, poor hermeneutic, and fractured homiletic have taken what is perfect and communicated it in imperfect ways. But we can't allow the abuse of some to cast a shadow on what God says to be true. Now, I've heard people preach all sorts of crazy things out of scripture, preach all sorts of things that damage people and hurt people. They use it for their own good. They use it to try to make money or hurt people or castigate people or cast people aside. I, I've said this before, but it's so true in our world today. You got a lot of believers who have a PhD in everybody else's sin and a GED in their own. They use scripture as a window to look into everybody else's life instead of a mirror to look into their own. But we can't allow the abuse of some to cause the silence of, of others. Well, I can't preach on those things. I can't talk that way because, you know, there's a preacher on YouTube. You ought to get off YouTube. You ought to get rooted in a community. You ought to get planted in the house of the Lord. You ought to get around other people who are going in the same direction as you, who can help you balance out when you get all offended. I will imperfectly communicate this message to you this morning. But if we can keep our eyes on the one who is perfect, friend, it's all going to work out in the end. Now watch, watch what happens. 
In verse 4, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, or Asia Minor, grace and peace to you from him who is in the past, who was in the present, and who is in the future to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne. 70% of the book of Revelation includes references to the Old Testament. Just because we are a believer in the new covenant doesn't invalidate the Old Testament. It contextualizes the Old Testament. So I read the Old Testament through the lens of the cross. I read the Old Testament through the sacrifice of Christ Jesus. It doesn't invalidate what the Old Testament communicates. It helps us contextualize the whole counsel of scripture. And in verse four, John makes a reference to what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 11 and verse two where Isaiah talks about the seven spirits or better translation would be the seven characteristics of God. And Isaiah says it this way, the seven characteristics, the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. I look at these things as really two sides of the same coin. For example, wisdom is knowing what to do but understanding is knowing how to do it. Counsel speaks to strategy, but might speaks to strength. Knowledge speaks to perception, but fear speaks to reverence. And what happens when you plant yourself in the house of the Lord is you give God enough time to develop every area in your life. Development doesn't happen in a microwave. It happens in a crock pot. But see, we want to treat church like an emergency room microwave. I need, I need the counsel and wisdom and courage and might and strength and understanding and spiritual gifts and spiritual fruit. And I also want to find a husband or a wife. And God, if you don't do it on this Sunday, I'm leaving. And maybe God loves you enough to plant you in a house for longer than the 60 or 90 second, you know, time span or attention span of our generation. Plant you someplace long enough where people actually hear your name and learn your story and love you enough to call you out on all your crap. Maybe God loves you enough to plant you in a place like that because he's working things in your life meticulously, day after day, season after season, year after year. God is working these things into your life. You know, these are really seven keys that we need for our moment. We need the spirit of the Lord because without the person and the presence of God, it doesn't matter what else we get. But we need wisdom and understanding. We need courage and might and strength. We need reverence and fear for the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all insight. And for us, John is describing not only what the churches in Asia Minor, which he will later apostolically oversee need, but by virtue what all churches who claim Christ as Lord will need as ingredients in their house. And for us, we need those things and we develop those things through consistency in community. Watch verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the rulers of the kings of earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be kings and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. That connection that John uses... In verse 6, kings and priests is an interesting statement because it is different than what the old covenant allowed. In the old covenant, 
either you were a king or you were a priest, but those two roles were not allowed to intermingle. And in fact, when kings would go against the wisdom of God and try to take on the role of priest to offer sacrifice unto the Lord, often they would be struck with illness or disease. Some would die on the spot. And John in Revelation 1 is saying under the new covenant, watch, the veil has been torn and we are now both kings and priests unto the Lord. Watch, which means this, not only do I have a governmental responsibility in earth, I have a spiritual governmental responsibility in heaven. I can't afford to live my life so heavenly minded that I'm not earthly good or so earthly minded that I'm not any heavenly good. For God has given me permission to dent the world with an encounter with his presence and at the same time have intimacy with him. I am both a priest and a king. So you are a priest because your first ministry is to him. Your first ministry is to be in his courts, to be in his gates with thanksgiving and praise, to minister to him in such a way that it creates an environment by which he can minister to you. But you also have an earthly responsibility. You also have a responsibility to dent the world around you. It's not enough just to get personally revived and then feel good about your own spiritual state. No, we carry a mandate to be disciples who function in the understanding of the Great Commission, go into all the world, make disciples, baptize them, teach the nations to obey everything that I've commanded. And so I have both an exterior obligation and an interior invitation. I am both a king and a priest. And it seems like so much in the church we're governed by the extremes at either end of the spectrum. Well, pastor, I just, you know, really working on my relationship with the Lord and, and this is where I want to camp and, you know, the world can go to hell around me. That's fine as long as I know where I'm going to end up. And then sometimes other people who are so invested in earthly solutions trying to do everything they can to be friends with the world and try to be liked by everybody around them, try to make an impact. They're forgetting it's not by might nor by power, but by his spirit alone. And what if we're people who operate with both tensions, we're holding both truths simultaneously at the same time. I am both a king with a governmental mandate and I'm a priest unto God with a spiritual invitation. Watch what happens here. Uh, let me read to you this quote. Uh, this is from a, a, an archbishop in the Catholic church by the name of Fulton Sheen. He says it like this, a religion, hear me, a religion that does not interfere with the secular order will soon discover that the secular order will not refrain from interfering with it. So for us, it's, it's not enough just to make sure that the interior of our four walls are good uh, if there's been anything that we've seen uh, over, over the past 12, 12 to 16 months is that when the church doesn't operate with a mandate to impact the world, what we pretty soon find is that the world has a mandate to impact the church. And so we've just got to decide what type of people we're willing to be in this hour. Watch in verse 9. Scripture says this, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John says this, a companion in suffering, kingdom, and patient endurance. Let me give you a key this morning. 
If you will marry your suffering with patient endurance, what you will reap is kingdom reward. I think a lot of believers get visited by suffering and decide to run from it instead of endure through it. Watch what James, the brother of Jesus says in chapter one and in verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. That means this, there is something great that is being developed in my life beyond the trauma of my temporary pain. So I'm going to endure until what the enemy meant for evil is turned into good. Watch, God can't take what the enemy meant for evil and use it for good. If you give up in the middle of your suffering, I've got to learn the art of keeping going for God in order to keep working. Watch what John says. This is why I'm here. I'm on the island because of the word and the testimony, not because of persecution, not because of bad circumstance, not because of God's judgment, but because of word and testimony. See, God is developing something deep in your life, and he is a master of working all things together for the good of those who love him. I like what John Piper says. He says, show the worth of God by the way you maintain your joy when everything but God goes. See, trust his word and his testimony because not only will it lead you to islands like Patmos, but it will give you revelation and resource and comfort in the middle of it. What if we could re-understand or recontextualize our temporary suffering in that context this morning? I'm not here because God's in a bad mood or God just wants to punish me because I've made a mistake or God must have passed me over. He wants to bless everybody else besides me. No, what if God has you in this moment, not as the author of your pain, but the one who uses your pain for a developmental cause? What if that type of God in this type of moment is inviting you to marry your hardship with faithful endurance in order to develop the deep things of your life? See, there is a reward that comes to the steadfast. There is a reward that comes to those who endure. It's why scripture says things like this. After you've done everything to stand, continue to stand. You know, we want prayers answered overnight. And if they're not answered overnight, we sink into existential spiritual crisis. Does God even love me anymore? And the apostle John has done nothing but faithfully follow Jesus and give his life for the mission at hand. And you know what his reward was? being abandoned on the island of Patmos by a Roman emperor who sought to kill him. And instead of having a pity party on an abandoned island, he says, actually, the reason I'm here is because I've got a word from God and the testimony of Jesus working in my life. That's how I know God is working all things together for the good of those who love him, because he's redeemed my perspective to see hardship through the lens of blessing to see difficulty through the lens of endurance, to see things that the enemy meant for evil that God, in fact, will use for good. That's why Jesus says things like this, in this world you will have trouble, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Now watch how Revelation 1 concludes. In verse 10, the Bible says, on the Lord's day, this is John speaking in the first person, I was in the spirit. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Even that phrase, the Lord's day was countercultural because in the Roman empire, they didn't have the Lord's day. They had what was called the emperor's day. 
Because the Roman government wasn't just a political system, it was a religious system. Watch, the Roman rulers were worshiped as gods. Do you know the fastest growing religion in the West right now? It's the worship of government. And yet John says, no, it's not the emperor's day, it's the Lord's day. Today is the Lord's day and I will rejoice and be glad in it. And the Bible says that while he recognized it was the Lord's day, even in that midst of that difficult circumstance, it was still the Lord's day. Come on, do you know if you wake up sick tomorrow, it's still the Lord's day? If you wake up angry tomorrow, it's still the Lord's day? You get fired from your job, it's still the Lord's day. That prayer that you're praying for doesn't get answered in the time frame you want, it is still the Lord's day. And when you keep that perspective, the next statement can also be true about your life. And I was in the spirit. This is good, watch. There are four references to the apostle John being in the spirit in the book of Revelation. The first is at Patmos in Revelation 1. The second is when he's in heaven. The third is when he's in the wilderness. And finally, the fourth is when he's on the mountain of God. If you could learn the art of not allowing your exterior geography to discourage your interior attitude, you can be in the spirit regardless of your circumstance. Here's the key. John says it. I was in the spirit. Let me read to you a set of verses, verses 12 through 18 of Revelation 1. It'll read like a sci-fi novel as John is trying to use human words to describe a supernatural experience. Let me read it to you, and then I'm going to reread it in a contextualized context for you this morning. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Amongst the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, with a golden sash around his chest. The hair of his head was white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like sun shining in all of its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid for I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Friend, can I rewrite these verses for our community this morning? Hear me. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit. Hear me. I walked into pursuit. I heard the loud music. I saw the art hanging on the walls. I saw the choir singing on the stage. I saw the lights bouncing off the walls. I heard babies crying in the back. Parking was slammed for six blocks. The pastor seemed a little too excited while he preached. The fog machine was running a little too much. The service lasted a little too long. But I wasn't distracted because I wasn't in the flesh. I was in the spirit. I wasn't distracted because revival and chaos always exist within the same setting. I wasn't distracted because I haven't come to church to worship my preference, but instead to worship Jesus. See, when I'm distracted, I lose my ability to discipline my perspective, to focus 
on the most important things. Sometimes our view of heaven is like a more boring denominational church service. Like God is sitting super reserved on stage. It's really quiet. Nobody's talking. Certainly nobody's jumping in worship. There's no lights. It's very stale. It feels like a hospital room. God is so holy that he's upset all the time. And that's our view of heaven. And yet in Revelation 1, when John sees Jesus, he says his voice is like the rushing waters. His hair is brilliant, white as snow. He's got seven stars in his right hand. There are seven golden lampstands representing his anointing and his presence. He's on a golden throne in front of a glassy sea. There's four living creatures who cry out day and night. He is worthy. He is the one who was and is and is to come. It is anything but boring. It is creative. It is chaotic. And if you're not in the spirit, you would have been distracted. And what if you've received an invitation this morning, not to be distracted by the screens on your left or your right, but to understand it's simply a human attempt at helping display the beauty and the brilliance of who God is. What if you could understand this morning that the purpose isn't the lights, the focus isn't the movers, the purpose isn't the fog machine, but we fail in our human attempt to try to help capture the beauty and the brilliance of God. And so we are doing in part here what one day we will do in fullness there. And can I promise you, when you get into heaven, there's going to be colors you see that you didn't even know existed. And you're going to hear every tribe, every tongue, and every nation singing praise to Jesus all at the same time. And it's going to be crowded. And the four living creatures are going to be bowing down day and night. And the 24 elders are going to be casting their crowns in front of the glassy sea. And it's going to be brilliant and overwhelming, and it's going to be sensory overload. But here's the good news of the gospel. As long as you stay in the spirit, you can receive revelation. We are those type of people in this type of hour. I can't afford to be distracted and then end up in the flesh because this is a house of revelation for you to receive. I can't force you to receive. I can't force you to allow the transformative work of God's spirit to take root in your life, but I can lead you to living water. And if you will stay in the spirit, this information will become revelation in your life. Friend, there are a lot of things that Jesus is. But if there's one thing that I've found to be true, one thing that he isn't, Jesus isn't distracted and neither are we. Come on, would you stand as we close this morning?